It could be a fairy tale. The soaring line of the violin added to the song line I had to follow and fly with the song and the entire chaos of a tuning orchestra to then find this rich balance of harmonies, of music that was carrying me, that was written for me by the composer Jeff Hamburg, a score enabling me to fill it in with my voice, letting the words of Judah Halevi soar through the grand hall of the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam to take the public with me in this tale of sound. Bring me there unharmed and then fly back again, a memory of passionate musicians playing around me, a black and gold dress that hugged me in the spotlights. Give greetings to all my loved ones and tell them of my happiness. I remember in my Dublin confinement how I sang those lines in Yiddish. And now I know how lucky I am that I can sing here when they, my parents, who just happened to be Jews, suffered their confinement with the perpetual threat of death at their door. All songs had gone during World War II and the Nazi occupation of Holland, where I'm from. My father was persecuted by the Nazis in the Netherlands because he was a Jew. That was the only reason. He had to go into hiding, total confinement, so to say. Good people would risk their lives hiding Jews under floorboards, in attics or secret rooms. My father shared his first hiding place with six other people. Among them was a well-brought-up creature, a lady who came from Berlin with a suitcase full of Berlin airs and graces, according to my father. Those six people in confinement were lucky enough to eat together. The good people who hid them cooked for them. And it thus seemed there happened to be salad, green salad served with every meal. My father would reluctantly eat his greens and then proceed to eat his meal. But Hannah, the Berlinerin, would have none of it. Every meal she scolded him in neat German. Den Salat ist man bekanntlich zuletzt. It is a well-known fact that one finishes one's meal with salad. To which my father highly irritated in these heightened circumstances of fear, would add that he clearly was a goat and needed to devour his greens right away. They were all safe eating their salad at that moment. 
with nowhere to go, of course. Tracks. Not the obvious ones that ended in nowhere, in death. I find that a strange expression, the wrong side of the tracks. To me, there is just that one beside the trains that took them to the extermination camps. The familiar ones are taking you to the mountains, to the sea drawing lines through lavender fields. Then, there were the tracks in 1945 Germany, children begging along those tracks, the only thing left to them to follow and find a future. They glued their cracked little hands to windows of the trains, the trains carrying the sick from Holland to Switzerland. My mother, she was on one of those trains, leaned out of her bed and out of the window to give her food away to German children, children on the wrong side of the tracks, who were hungry, and she was too, but she couldn't digest any food anymore after a long winter of starvation. She imagined she could hear the little stomachs tight as drums, rumble and rumble. Fear and starvation have their own rhythm. They beat an inner drum, one that can be heard in your own ears only. We sit with winter still at our windows, our feet by the stove, and we watch the colored pictures, children, in bombed-out Syria, seeking food in rubbish heaps looking like massive toy mountains. So much can be found there. They do find stuff and bring their exotic bounty back to the streets of a burned-out city. Into a night they go, singing. I saw them in a documentary that choked me into silence. Syrian children... Yemenites, Africans plagued by just another plague. One COVID-19, not high on their list, I'd say. But they must be higher on our list somehow, those children. I know a happy Syrian girl who sings to me in her Dublin confinement, dressed in her best dress. She tries to teach me Arabic. I might learn. Sing it to me. Ranim's daughter, Serena, sings to me. Me, mother, 
German is what you were born in, Anna. Then, when you went to a Dutch school, you started learning the language of the Amsterdamers, with a lot of distorted Yiddish and even Hebrew in a common speak, so to say. Mokum is the term for Amsterdam, meaning the place, the place of refuge in your case, is Amsterdam. The Mayim is the water, i.e. the canal. Your house, your family's hiding place, is on one of these canals. Your family and the other family you were with spoke German originally, and yet it was branded the evil language by everybody in that place of hiding. And you were all communicating in Dutch, the language I was born in. I can imagine the almost comical accents the older people must have had, or even their turn of phrase. Something like the German-Jewish couple who were in the film Casablanca, who fled their country and were practicing for their new life in the USA. What o'clock is it, darling? They asked each other. And then, here I am locked in a gentle confinement, overlooking the Mayim, my canal, and the immense spread of the Dublin mountains, locked into the English language for 20 years now, leaving my native Dutch for occasional whispers to my husband, who did learn Dutch while living in Mokum, i.e. Amsterdam. Dutch is not an evil language to me. It just feels awkwardly inadequate if I want to express myself with hopefully more simplicity. English is my hiding place. It is where I find words in the strangest places that are unpronounceable and inexplicable to me. So I search in the attics and salons of my hiding place for the meaning of these words or expressions that are stashed away and I collect them, I savor them like a gift, a toy of letters. I'm allowed to maybe play with. Anna Frank, you wrote down your life in confinement in Dutch. You must have heard the adults occasionally revert to their own habitat, their original German, translating their despair and fear and anger back into their own language. This is a different type of confinement. To exclude yourself from your own language was it to stifle their innermost expression of fear? I'm asking you these questions as if you were here, because you became part of my life, Anna, 
when your father rang our doorbell by the dunes near the North Sea. On a quiet afternoon, I must have been five or six at the time. We were sitting in the living room and our mother was talking about varnishing the floorboards in a deep purple. It's strange that I can remember words that were spoken then. So, deep purple, Anna. And your father stood there. Otto Frank had come from Switzerland to Holland many years after the end of World War II. He was seemingly still coming across papers that needed handling, like those letters written to my father from his sister, Sire, shortly before her death in Bergen-Belsen. He handed them to my father. My father was crying. I'd never seen him cry. I'd never seen him cry. That's how you came into my life, Anna, through my father. Through your father, Otto Frank. It was years later that I read your diary, written in my native language. You never held back in that language. Deep courage. Raging lust for life in your miserable confinement. How did my aunt's letters come to live in your father's hands? I honestly don't know. You and Sire, my aunt, died together in the camp of Bergen-Belsen. That's all I know. Do you remember the mulberry tree at that Russian poet's place? I once asked, and my mother starts to speak of that mulberry tree. But she also mentions the other similar tree in the south of France, growing in front of the house 
where we stayed for years. And she was old, and I had become a mother with a daughter and husband. When in the heat of an afternoon we'd all fallen asleep, woman, child, man, as a nearly biblical small family close to the earth, the air, and mother stood over us and said that, Mayaradost. And she was her mother, her grandmother, her great-grandmother, all come back to tell us that, that we were her joy. I sang it to her, Mayaradost. I heard it being said to the children of the Russian friend, the poet Paul Rodienko. When we all listened to him playing the balalaika, a beautiful string instrument, folk instrument, like the one played in the famous novel by Pastyanak, Dr. Zhivago. I could learn to play it, but I'm not one for the plucking instrument, you know. I like to look at it and hum a song. My mother used to sing around the mulberry tree. My aradost, my joy. I have books, many books to read. I have a book written by the Russian author Nabokov. It is called Ada. And it reminds me of my family at home, long gone already, mixing up the giant pool of European languages to suit themselves. Mayaradost, they say it in that book. The two tragic lovers, when they find each other, after a gap of ten years, in a dark, luxurious nightclub. A day of singing in the mulberry tree. My father had gone quiet. I could feel he was at the beginning of one of his episodes of dark, silent days in which he wouldn't speak to us. We walked together along the erect houses in a port called Fiere, a seaside town in Zeeland, along the sea, on uneasy cobblestones, the sky shone in that clean, clear light, showing us in the day that there was nothing more to it, to our life, than this, father and me holding hands, looking at the movement of the North Sea. He made me hop over one bollard to the next. I jumped the chains in between them, until we reached the end of the harbour and stood there with nowhere to go. We didn't speak. Father sighed a vague, yes, and I nodded in agreement. We turned around and I felt as if this bright and beautiful summer light had wiped out everything and just walked and saw only a blank day around us. I filled in his silence with my own. That is how it started, with me telling this story, with mother, so slender in her cotton dress, 
sitting under the mulberry tree full of fruit, singing, singing a folk tune, my aradost, my joy. A long confinement with people that live in my past, feeding it so it grows and takes shape into our hands, hands dipped in paint when we place them on the pillar in the living room to leave the imprints of our existence. A Kabbalistic habit to prove we were all in the house before our daughter left for New York back then. So, again, memories. We had to leave our home when we were little, Marianne and I. We were to be with other people while our mother was confined to her sick bed. My sister Marianne went to get her childhood painting with Bommel, the dog, and bellow the steam train and the loving couple of artists by the sea who painted Marianna's puzzle piece, a piece that became the totem of her stay. We had that painting to share in our bedroom, later back home, but she took it when she went to live elsewhere. It was hers, not mine. I'd been staying with animal lovers somewhere else. But still, our youth was in it, in that painting. Marianne is far away now, living on another island. I'm here, confined in Dublin, watching the city, working with people on screens. My pupils work far away and write beautiful songs for all to tell us how they are without fear. We cannot touch each other anymore, but I can hug nature, listen to birds and Mozart, stroke the softness out of our pet's fur and bring out my voice to speak Bring me anur dahin, Besholem. Bring me there, unharmed, to sing. Sing. <laughs>